Thanks for coming. Um, I know it's blizzarding outside, so um, we're going to try to um, get through it, and, and we're going to, I guess here, here's a couple things I want you to think about while we're um, going through the talk. Uh, at the very end, he's going to, this is Brady's phone number here, uh, he is going to answer any questions that you guys may have, but you can text him in. So we don't have to call on you. Maybe it's a, a question that you want to know, but maybe you're a little embarrassed to ask it out loud. That's okay. Uh, we're going to be able to do that at the very end. So he's going to have question and answers at the end of this uh, if you have anything that you're curious about. So uh, Brady is our, our speaker tonight. I've heard him. Uh, he's awesome. I gave a viewpoint I'm, I haven't heard before, which is uh, fantastic. So I guess uh, he is uh, out of the church in Cheyenne, uh, Berean, and is part of our fellowship of churches here. So um, if you guys want to give him a round of applause, Brady can come up and go talk. Good afternoon. It was great that everyone made it out in the blizzard. So kind of crazy out there. How's everyone doing tonight? You got some pizza in you? So some carbs, so that's always good, some grease, so all the things that a bunch of teenage boys need. Yep, cool. Uh, so like Josh said, my name is Brady. Uh, I live in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Uh, I, until recently, I'd lived in Nebraska my whole life, so I'm definitely a Husker fan through and through, so that will never change. So it's good to be back in Nebraska. Uh, tonight, we're going to talk about some difficult issues. We're going to talk about sexuality. And so we're going to talk about homosexuality, what biblical sexuality looks like, how we can kind of respond to people in our culture. Uh, and so sometimes this is awkward, difficult things to talk about. But here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to do what I like called just embrace the awkward. And so I'm going to have you guys repeat after me on three. Say the words, embrace the awkward. All right? All right. One, two, three. Embrace Good. Now we can just be awkward and uh, be okay with it. Does that work? All right. So uh, like Josh said, uh, we're going to do some Q&A at the end. So this is the one night at youth group you can text in questions, or you can be on your phone texting, but it only had better be to me. So uh, there's my number. There's nothing off limits that you can't ask. Uh, we, we, we've heard it all. We've already embraced the awkward uh, and so there's nothing you have to feel ashamed about asking. It's all anonymous. No one will know what your question is. And so uh, please, if I can answer any questions, uh, just text them in and we'll look forward to doing some, some Q&A time. So, uh, th- so I'm going to start with my story, kind of my testimony, then just some things that God's taught me along the way about biblical sexuality. Does that sound good? All right. So let me open this in a word of prayer and we will get with it. Lord, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for these kids. I thank you that each and, one of, each and every one of them was just fearfully and wonderfully made by you. I, I pray that tonight you speak to their hearts. I pray that you use my story to give them a glimpse of your goodness and your grace. And I, I pray that they can experience that tonight. I pray that you can give them a vision for what uh, sexuality and relationships can look like. And I, I pray that you bring them to repentance in any place where they need it and help them just experience the grace to do that. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So my story begins uh, over 30 years ago, growing up on a farm here in Nebraska. Uh, many of you guys are probably farm kids, so you can relate. Grew up in a very small town, very rural area. 
And I grew up uh, just feeling like I was a little bit different than the rest of the boys. I always remember looking at my older brother and my dad and feeling like there's something different about me. There's something that makes them men that it seems like is just different about me. But it wouldn't be until years later when I'd figure out what that was. The main time I grew up going to church. We grew up going to church on Sundays. We prayed before our meals. We did kind of the small town, put on a good image for everyone thing that a lot of Christians do in small towns. But I grew up knowing that I was a sinner who needed Jesus as my Savior. So I'm very thankful for that background. But at the age of 11, my life got a little bit messy when my parents went through a divorce. Many of you guys can relate to that. You've probably gone through similar situations. So my parents got a divorce, but they went through the whole legal process of fighting over each other's stuff. And finally, they, they went to courts. So this was the court date where it was finalized. And we thought, okay, finally, we can kind of move on with our lives. But instead, my parents actually got back together 17 times. And so 17 times, my dad actually moved back in with us. And every time, it, it didn't work out, and he had to move out. So for about three years, from age 11 to 14, it was just mass chaos in my family and in my life. For month to month, we didn't know if my parents would be together, if they wouldn't be together, which parent I'd be living with, where we'd be living. And that's a very kind of informative, important time in a person's life. And it left me just really hurting and confused. It was really during the beginning of that time, about the age of 11, when I started to figure out some of the things that might be different about me. Uh, I remember, you know, that this time going through kind of junior high, uh, most of you look like you're high schoolers, so you're, you've already gone through this period of life. Junior high is just an awkward, difficult, usually horrible time for everyone. Am I right? Yep. And so it's just really awkward and confusing. There's all these changes happening, and all the boys my age were starting to kind of notice girls in ways that they've never noticed girls before. Uh, all of a sudden, girls went from having cooties to being kind of cute. Like, there's a kind of that transformation happening. But I wasn't noticing girls in that way, but I was having these same kind of emotional and physical and sexual feelings for other guys. And I didn't know why I was having those feelings. I was really confused by it. I, I, I didn't know why I was thinking and feeling and desiring those things. But I always grew up in these rural conservative churches where I'd always heard it preached that homosexuality was a sin. And so I knew that... Uh, that the homosexual lifestyle was a sin. But I'd always grown up with a lot of kind of legalism and self-righteousness where that was preached as the one unforgivable sin. And so just the fact that I was having these feelings and attractions uh, was just filling me with a lot of shame and guilt. Well, I kept it a secret for a couple of years. I did a really good job of hiding it from everyone. Uh, so when I was about 13, um, I, I was still living kind of in the secret of having these secret desires, but they started to just consume me more. They started to occupy more and more of my just mental space, and I started to dwell on them more. And I thought, I've got to tell someone. I've got to tell someone what's going, what's going on. Well, my family life was kind of a wreck, so I didn't think I could tell any family members. And I kept going to youth group on Wednesday nights, even though my family was really no longer involved with the church. I was going to youth group because I really wanted to know who God was. So I decided, well, I should just tell a youth group pastor or a youth group leader about what's going on in my life. Maybe they'll have some answers. Well, before I had the courage to do that was a moment that will forever change my life. 
I'll never forget sitting at the youth group with about 30 kids, about, it's about the size of this, sitting on the floor with all of them. We didn't have fancy chairs like you guys. Uh, but th- this moment that forever changed my life, the youth group pastor made, made a comment from the pulpit. He said, I wish all homosexuals would die. And that moment was like a knife to my chest. Uh, I'll never forget sitting there thinking as this just hurting, confused 13-year-old, wow, he's talking about me when he says that. That's, that's me who he's talking about. And so I was really confused by that. I was really hurt by that. I actually went home that night and loaded a gun and was going to end my life. Because I thought, if it's God's will for all homosexuals to die like I heard at youth group, then I guess I will. And so I had the gun loaded, ready to push the trigger, when I heard my mom walk in the front door. So I kind of came to my senses and heard and put the gun underneath my bed before she found anything. So by God's grace, I didn't end my life that night. But that was just the start of a downward spiral. That was the, that was the moment where I put up a wall around myself. And I said, I guess, guess I can't let anyone in. I guess I can't let anyone see what's going on inside of me. I guess I have to keep this a secret from everyone. And that was also the moment that I started just to develop this deep distrust towards Christians. I thought, they're just these hateful, judgmental jerks, and I guess I, I just can't be long with them. So it would be years later until I stepped inside the doors of a church again. I didn't go back to church. I didn't go back to youth group. I wanted to know who God was. But uh, I, I started to uh, have these thoughts and feelings that God just can't love me because of the things that I'm struggling with and things that I'm feeling. Well, so that was that youth group incident was the start of a, a downward spiral in my life. It was shortly after that that I discovered online pornography. Uh, I'm kind of old now. Uh, back in my day when I was in high school, junior high, online porn was kind of a new thing because the internet was new, believe it or not. Uh, I remember days when we didn't have that. And so I, I discovered online porn, and I was just instantly hooked. And for me, my addiction to online pornography was more than just a sexual addiction. It felt like it's the only place I could go where I could belong. It was people who had the same feelings as me, the same desires as me. These people understood me, and it felt like the only place where I could belong and be understood was in this online world of darkness. And so I pursued that, and it was just, it had a hook on me, and I go to it over and over again. Well, just like any addiction, if you don't deal with it in the, the right ways, it grows and it festers inside and starts to build. And so before long, looking at these things on the computer screen wasn't enough. I wasn't cutting it. I, I really needed to act on them. I felt like I had to have these things. I had to do these things. I craved uh, experiencing the things that I was seeing on the screen. And so at the age of 14, uh, I started to act out on these same-sex desires. I started to find uh, local men to have sexual encounters with. And as a 14-year-old boy in a small town, Nebraska, uh, 20 years ago, I could get online any night of the week and find sexual encounters. Sometimes older men willing to even pay me to do those things. And so the, the, the more I had of that, the more I felt like I needed. I felt like... Uh, like, this is everything I need. I desire this so much. I remember sometimes waking up in the morning thinking, I can't get through the rest of the day without fulfilling these desires. And so I guess I'll find a way to do that. And I did. But the more of it I had, the more of it I felt like I needed. 
So going through the rest of high school was just really confusing. I, I was acting on these sexual desires. I was experimenting with same-sex relationships with other guys. I was totally addicted to online pornography. I was experiencing all these sexual encounters. And I feel like the rest of high school was this kind of emotional pendulum swinging back and forth. Uh, on one hand, I'd say, all right, God, I want to love you. I want to serve you, but you can't love me the way that I am. And so I guess I'll have to fix myself. I guess I'll have to walk away from this lifestyle. I believe that this isn't how you created me, uh, uh, even though it feels like it. I believe that this is a sin. And so I'll walk away from this so that God can love me. And so I'd do that. I'd, I'd walk away from the, 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 gay, the gay relationships, the sexual encounters, all that. And just like any addiction, you say, I'm never going to do this again. And then that would last on average about 42 minutes. And then I'd just give into it again. And then I'd just feel hopeless and I'd give up. And I'd say, all right, I guess I can't do this. I guess this is just the way I am. It feels like I'm born this way. Society it was telling us that if you have same-sex desires, you're just born gay, and that's the way that you are. And so the pendulum would swing in the opposite direction, and I'd be angry and bitter towards God, and I'd say, how could a loving God create me in a way that's going to condemn me to hell? And my answer to that was that either uh, God is not a loving God or there is no God at all. And so I was, I was wrestling through these things as a teenager, asking these difficult questions. I was, I was wrestling with other questions like, what is this going to mean for my life? What is this going to do for my life? I, I was wrestling with questions of identity. Who am I? Does this mean that I'm just gay and that's who I have to be? Because that's what society says. And I've tried to change and I, I, I can't. So by the time I graduated from high school, I'd really cemented into my soul the fact that I'm just gay and that's who I have to be. I have no choice in this. Feels like I'm just born this way. And so I guess that that must be true. Well, I went on to college at a small college in Nebraska, Shattern State College. And I'll never forget that the moment I pulled up to campus for the first time to unload all the stuff out of my car into the dorms. I pulled up to campus and there's this group of guys standing there, and they offered to help me unload my stuff. And so I took them up on it. We, we unloaded my car into the dorms, and then they invited me to a ministry on campus that met on Wednesday nights. It's a lot like a youth group, but for college students. I went that first Wednesday night, not because I was walking with God, but because I thought it might be a good place to make friends. Uh, I still kind of had this Christian image thing going on. I wanted people to think I was a good Christian person, even though I was even questioning the existence of God. So I went to this ministry on Wednesday night. I went back faithfully every Wednesday night for the next two years. And it seemed like nothing I heard from the pulpit uh, changed my life. I'm sure that the gospel was preached. Um, I'm sure that but every, time I, every time I heard messages about God's grace, I thought, that just doesn't apply to me. Like, I'm too far gone. God can't love me the way that I am. And so... Uh, so I kept going back, uh, but I, my life didn't change. But what did change my life eventually were some of the relationships and the community that I built there. There's upperclassmen guys who just started investing my life. They started to uh, pursue me spiritually. They started asking me questions about my life. They gave me community. They gave me a community where I could feel like I belonged, where I was loved. And so God started to use these guys to really soften my heart and show me 
a much better picture of Christianity. The, the, these guys were guys who truly loved Jesus. They, they loved other people. They were open and real and honest about the struggles in their life, and they repented of their sin, and they did it openly and publicly so I could see Jesus changing them from the inside out. And so I was getting a picture of who Jesus was through the way that these guys lived and the way that they loved me. Well, things kind of came to a head after my sophomore year. I remember just uh, uh, ending a, a same-sex relationship I was in and just feeling hopeless. Uh, I was at a place of just hopelessness and despair. And I thought, this life is just not working for me. This life in the LGBT community, this life uh, in same-sex relationships, this isn't working for me. I remember walking away from every relationship, every sexual encounter, thinking, this isn't doing for me what it promised to do for me. This isn't make my soul feel loved the way that it's supposed to make me feel loved. But I didn't know what to do. I put all of my chips in this lifestyle. I put my hope into it. It's like, this will finally make me happy and have no choice in this. But my sin was failing me and I could see that clearly, like sin always does. It always leaves us hopeless and hurting. But I thought, I have no idea where to go from here. I, I've already tried to change myself, and I, I, I can't do that. And I don't think that God can love me the way that I am. So I was at a place again where I was considering suicide. Uh, I was angry towards God. I thought there's nowhere else to go. The, the life in the uh, LGBT world and with this gay identity is not doing it for me. Uh, and so I have no other choice but just to end my life. But I decided that before I end my life, I wanted to tell one of my Christian friends about this life I was living, because I'd done a really good job of keeping it a secret from them. And so telling one of my Christian friends was really going to be affirmation that they don't actually love me, that if, if my Christian friends know about this part of my life, they won't actually love me. They love the person they think I am. They love the image that I've portrayed of them. But if they knew the sin going on in my life, if they knew about my gay relationships and, and identity and all that, they wouldn't still love me. And so I told one of my friends, Lex, one of the upperclassmen guys at, at college who had really been investing in me, uh, I told him about the whole lifestyle I was living, my history with it, the pornography, the sexual encounters, the relationships, the prostitution, everything. And when I told him that, I actually had a gun loaded in my room, and I said, if, if he rejects me, that's going to be affirmation that, that a Christian can't love me, and so I'm just going to go in, in my life. Well, I'm still standing here today, so obviously Lex didn't reject me. Instead, he, he got up, came across the room, and he gave me this big hug, said, hey man, I love you, and I have no idea what this is going to look like, but your sin is no better or worse than my sin and we're going to get through this together because God's grace is sufficient. And for the next three days, I couldn't get that out of my mind. I couldn't quit thinking about how Lex still loves me, uh, even though he knows about all this sin in my life and everything that I've done. And what kept going through my mind was that that can't be Lex who loves me. That has to be the Jesus I see in him who loves me. And so for the first time, I started to become convinced, I think that Jesus still loves me. I think that God's grace is sufficient for me too. 
that despite all my sin and everything I've done and, and, and committing this sin of homosexuality for so many years now, I think that God still loves me. So the first time I was convinced that God's grace is sufficient for my sin too. So after three days of this experience with Lex, uh, I, I was convinced that Jesus still loves me. And because of that, I got on my knees and surrendered my life to him. I had one of these just kind of tear-filled, snot-covered moments of repentance at the foot of the cross where all of a sudden I understood that God's grace is sufficient for me and it's all that I need. And you see, I called myself a Christian for uh, really all of my life. I had the Christian label. I sometimes had a good Christian image going on. Uh, people thought I was a good Christian person. But what I realized in that moment was that my Christian faith was just my demands on God. It was making my terms and conditions. It was me telling God, all right, God, I'll follow you and I'll be a Christian, but I want you to instantly take the struggle away. I want you to make me instantly attracted to women. I want you to give me a wife, a house, uh, the picket fence, the whole American dream. So my faith was just my demands on God, which is no faith at all. But for the first time, I was at a place of surrender where I said, I don't care what it takes. I don't care who I have to tell. I don't care what people think of me. I don't care what it costs me. I want to follow you, and I surrender to you. And that is the gospel that, that God calls us to, complete surrender no matter what it costs because his grace is sufficient, and his grace is all that we need. And so my life instantly started to change after that moment on June 21st, 2006. I instantly, uh, within the next few days, told the rest of my Christian community about what uh, uh, had happened in my life and, and the life I'd been living. And they were just as supportive as Lex was. Uh, they, they, they loved me. They, they encouraged me. They started to read scripture with me. Uh, they, they didn't know what... Uh, what what was involved with this lifestyle or with these issues or why I was struggling with this. They had no idea, but what they did know was that God's word was sufficient and God's grace was sufficient for me. So they started to read God's word with me and, and they started to uh, just encourage me and pray with me. But I was still struggling. That summer I was still struggling because I still had these feelings and I was still wrestling with questions like, if God's grace is enough, and he loves me unconditionally, and I'm his child now, then can't I just still be gay and, and live that life and maybe find a monogamous relationship and someone I can try to be happy with? But as I combed through Scripture, I kept coming across Scripture, like in First Peter, where it says, be holy as I am holy. And as I started to fall in love with, with God's word and the Jesus I found, and found in it, uh, I couldn't find any justification to continue to live that life. I've seen over and over again that marriage was created for one man and one woman for a lifetime. And I knew that if, if my eternity rests on the words of the, on these pages, if my eternity rests on the words of Scripture and God's promises, if this is where I'm putting my hope for eternity, then I need to surrender to all of God's word. I can't just pick and choose what, what I surrender to and the, the parts of God's word that I'm obedient to. I need to surrender my life to all of it. I need to trust in it, even when it doesn't make sense. Even when the moments were said, I have no idea how I can 
quit living that life because it's all I've ever known and I've tried before, but I trust in God's word and I'm going to surrender to that even when it doesn't make sense. One of the passages that life, that, or excuse me, one of the passages that summer that gave me hope that I could live a different life uh, comes in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. I want to read to you guys just these three verses from 1 Corinthians 6. So 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verses 9 and 10, we'll start with. It seems like I heard uh, these, these two verses over and over again as a child growing up, uh, pointed towards the homosexual community. It says, Do not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor the thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's very serious scripture. It's all these sins should be taken very seriously. But I always heard it just pointed out towards the homosexual community. It's kind of the self-righteousness of, hey, look at them out there. They're not inheriting the kingdom of God. But my life started to change that summer when someone read me the very next verse. Verse 11 says, that is what some of you were, but you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that just blew me away that 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote this, at that time there's, there were people who were homosexuals and they're no longer that. Paul says they, they were that in past tense because they were washed by the blood of Christ. And so that gave me hope for the first time that I could live a different life. That, that God could do that in the past tense for me, that that could be what I was and not what I am. And so for the first time, I had hope that I could live a different life. And by the end of the summer, my life looked completely different. I completely walked away from uh, the, the gay community, from sexual encounters, from same-sex relationships, I completely walked away from that life. I started to get a, a control over my pornography addiction for the first time. And I'd love to stand here and say that that happened because God just uh, took all those feelings and attractions and desires away, but he didn't do that. But I also want to be clear on something that, uh, that I want to be clear on the ultimate transformation that happened on my life that summer. I think that many times within the church, within the body of Christ, that the goal for people like me was for us to go from gay to straight. That's what they want for us. That's the type of transformation they want to see for us. But I want to be very clear that God did something so much more remarkable in my life that summer. He didn't take me from gay to straight. He took me from lost to saved. He stepped into my soul and saved me for eternity. And that is so much more remarkable than any type of just behavior change. He saved my soul for eternity, and it was because of that that my life started to change. It was out of that grace and love that he had for me to save me for eternity that I was able and willing to live a different life and deny myself of the things that felt like they were so natural. So by the end of the summer, my life had changed, and I, it wasn't because God just took, magically took these feelings and attractions away. But I want to share with you guys just a few things that God did in my life that summer that helped me live a different life. The first one was this. He gave me value. 
He showed me that I don't have to sell myself. I don't have to earn the love of another person to have value. My value doesn't come from relationships. It doesn't come from kind of manipulating these emotional responses from people, which is so many of our relationships these days. It doesn't come from uh, just other people. My value comes from God because he made me in his image and he loves me. He made me, therefore my value comes from him. It doesn't come from other people. Second is he gave me power. He showed me that now that since I know him, that I have the Holy Spirit indwelling in me. And that's such a remarkable thing that the Lord does for us. And because I have the power of the Holy Spirit in me, it means that I can wake up every day and choose to live a life that's pure and holy and in line with God's word, no matter what feelings, attractions, or temptations I have. I can live a life through the power of the Holy Spirit that's different from the world, that's in line with God's word. And the third was that he gave me an eternal perspective. Uh, here's what I mean by that. Uh, we, live, we live in a world these days where they say that living by the Bible standards on marriage and sexuality is not only impractical, but our world says it's like inhumane to expect that of anyone. And there's been so many moments over now the last 13 years that I've really struggled where it's been difficult and painful to deny myself of something that just felt like it was so natural. But in these moments of difficulty and struggle, uh, God always reminds me of the sacrifice he made for us. I, he often reminds me of a picture of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before he's crucified. And Jesus is so tormented about what he's going to be going through on the cross. He's actually sweating drops of blood. And Jesus is tormented about what he's, by what he's going to be going through, not just because of the physical pain of the physical death on the cross, but really the spiritual reality of taking on the sin of the world. But God reminds me of that. And he reminds me that even though he's so tormented by that, Jesus did it. He was obedient and he went to the cross and he, he went through that pain and torment for my sin. He did it for me. And one of my favorite verses is John 19.30, where Jesus speaks his last three words on, on earth before his death. He says, it is finished. And when he said, it is finished, he finished giving himself to me. He, he gave me the one thing that I needed for eternity, which is himself. So in light of the fact that I have everything that I need for eternity, gosh, that makes my earthly, worldly problems and desires seem so much less important it means that I can deny myself the things that the world says I have to have because I have everything I need for eternity because of the gift that Christ has given me. I am complete in Christ for eternity. And the last thing that God taught me that summer was that he gave me a new identity. He showed me that I'm not defined by my feelings, attractions, desires. I'm not defined by the labels that society gives me, that my identity is in him and only him. That I don't have to be defined by the boxes that the world puts me in. That just because I might experience these attractions or feelings, that doesn't mean I have to identify as gay. That's not who I am. Who I am is someone who is in Christ, and that is my identity. Uh, we live in a world that is so confused when it comes to sexuality and, and relationships. And I often hear people, Christians say, why is this sin of homosexuality being treated so differently 
than others. Why is our our culture being forced to celebrate uh, this sin, it seems like? And I think that part of the reason why this one sin seems different than others is it's so much about identity. It feels like this is just who I am, and this is who I have to be. But as time went on in my life, God started to chip away at that identity. Slowly but surely, it no longer felt like my life evolved around that one area. It was still there, and it was still a struggle. But as I grew in my relationship with Christ, my identity in Christ started to outweigh my identity in my sexuality. And along the way, God continued to mold me and shape me. And over the years, he started to really show me areas of my heart where my heart had twisted what God made good, where I had believed lies that had led me to have desires that I shouldn't for other people. We live in a world that says, if you're gay, you're just born that way, and that's the way you have to be. But I'm living proof that that's not true, because God changed my life, and I was able to live a different life. This, so God's continued me down this journey for 13 years now, this journey of, of healing and finding hope in him, this journey of revealing what's going on in my heart, revealing the idolatry behind same-sex attraction. Uh, how many of you guys, how many of you know what the word idolatry means? Have you been taught that? Anyone know what idolatry means? False idols. Yep, what's an idol? Okay, so an idol is something you worship besides God. So let's, let's start there. Let's get some basics. Uh, an idol is something that you worship besides God. It's, it's a sin to worship something besides God because you're putting your hope and your allegiance in something other than God, and we're only supposed to worship God. But men, since the beginning of time, have made idols. They, they've worshipped things that have been created instead of worshiping the creator who's God. And so God started to show me some of the idolatry behind my struggles and desires. He started to show me some of the things that I was worshiping uh, behind my desires. Some of what was feeding these desires and giving me these desires for other men were, were things like finding my value in other men, trying to acquire things from them that I wish I had for myself, uh, trying to uh, make myself more important, feel valuable. I was worshiping these other men uh, to, to give myself wholeness instead of looking to God for my hope and my wholeness. That's idolatry. That's worshiping something other than God. And we do it all the time, many of us, on a daily basis. In Romans 1, it talks about homosexuality. And I'm not going to go through the whole chapter, but there's kind of this pr- progression that it starts with they traded God's truth for a lie. And because of that, they started worshiping idols. They started worshiping created things, things on earth, objects, and people instead of worshiping God. And when they start worshiping other people, they develop sexual desires for those people, and they had sexual uh, interactions and relations with people of the same gender instead of natural relations with people of the opposite gender in marriage like God had intended. And so their uh, same-sex desires, their lust, was born out of idolatry. It was born out of uh, worshiping people instead of worshiping God. And so God, over the last 13 years, has continued to uh, show me some of the idolatry that had developed in my life, how I was worshiping other people 
and that gave me sexual and romantic and emotional feelings towards them. And as he did that, he showed me the lies that I believed about myself, about him, and about the world. And when God revealed those things, then he could trade those lies for God's truth. He took me down this reverse course of Romans 1, where through the power of the Holy Spirit, I changed how I was living. And then through sanctification, which is becoming more like Christ, which is a process that lasts our whole lifetime as Christians, he showed me the lies that I was believing and helped me trade them for his truth, which is found in his word. But over the years, God has shown me that the idolatry behind same-sex attraction, and I've, I've now discipled hundreds of guys who are struggling with same-sex attraction, who are trying to leave the gay community, and as I've discipled and been part of their journey, God has shown me those similar threads of idolatry behind their, their attractions. But God has shown me that idolatry, that false worship, behind same-sex attraction and same-sex relationships, they also showed me that that very same idolatry is behind so many of the heterosexual relationships and marriages in our culture, not only outside the church, but inside the church. We have a tendency to look to people to find our value, to look to people and relationships to find meaning in life, to give us hope. Uh, Many times, what we call love is no love at all. Many times when we, we think that we're in love with someone, uh, we don't actually love them because love is laying down your life for someone. We love the feelings that they give us. We love how they make us feel. And that's not loving them. That's actually self-love. That's sometimes idolatry of worshiping this person, finding our value in them. And that is the foundation that our world will tell us that we build relationships on, how we pursue someone. But that's not the biblical foundation that God built for marriage. But people have been doing that since the beginning of time. They've been looking to other people to find value, and it's always a lie that will never sustain them. We see that in the Old Testament. I'm I'm not going to go there because it's a long story, clear back in Genesis, but there's this story in the Old Testament about Jacob and Rachel, And Jacob's life was a wreck, and he had to flee his homeland. He had to flee from his family. And and after he flees his land, he sees this beautiful woman named Rachel. And he's just uh, so infatuated with her, he has to be with her. And so he's willing to enslave himself for seven years to be able to marry Rachel. Well, after the end of those seven years, uh, he finds out he was tricked. And he has to actually enslave himself for another seven years to marry Rachel. And because he's so in love with her and he's so just enthralled with her beauty. Well, for Jacob, this wasn't a biblical understanding of what God has for marriage, of sacrificing yourself, laying down your life for another person unconditionally. For Jacob, his life was a wreck and he's seen this beautiful woman and he thought that she could provide him with redemption. He thought that she would make his life better, that his life would be redeemed from this mess by being with this beautiful woman. But Jacob was wrong because you can never find redemption in your life through a woman or a man or anyone else. You can only find redemption through Jesus. That's the only place where we can find our hope. And so if we're going to handle the issue of homosexuality well in our culture, we also have to handle just sexuality and marriage well. We have to understand that 
marriage between one man and one woman is about giving your life to this person unconditionally, not what they can do for me. I'd always thought through the rest of my 20s that uh, I would never be married. Um, And so I'll just end with this story of of how God's continued to work in my life. I thought I'd never be married. Uh, I thought that with my struggles with same-sex attraction, and even though they've decreased over the years, and God's done so much work there, and he's traded lies, I believe, for his truth, and took away so many of those attractions, I thought I could just never be married to a woman with that background. But a couple of years ago, uh, I was in seminary, and God started to stir some things in my heart as I started to understand biblical marriage of laying down your life, sacrificing your life for the good of another person. Uh, God started to stir in my heart that maybe I could be married someday. And it's during the end of that year of seminary uh, that one of my friends uh, messaged me and said, hey, there's this really remarkable woman in my church named Mary. Uh, would you be interested in going on a blind date with her? And uh, I said, oh, yeah, sure. What will that hurt? I'd never been on, I was like 31 years old then. I'd never been on a date with a woman. I thought, what will hurt? I'll go on the blind date. And so I went on the blind date uh, with, with Mary, and who is now my wife. Uh, we hit it off, and uh, we got married this last October. And as I was dating Mary, uh, I, I asked a lot of interesting questions from Christians. I was asked questions like, oh, you're dating a woman, so you're attracted to women now. And my answer was, no, no, no. I don't want to trade my lust for men for lust for women. I only want to be attracted to one woman, and that's my wife. And I want that attraction to be built on our deep knowledge of each other and our commitment to one another and our reliance on one another and serving God together. I want our our relationship to be a picture of the gospel and, and through dating Mary for almost two years before we got married, God built that attraction towards her in ways that I've never felt for another woman. It was based on those things of, of deep knowledge and adoring the way that God created her and trusting her and mutual submission to the gospel together. That's what God built our attraction on. And so I have feelings for Mary that I've never had for any other woman, nor do I ever want for any other woman. I think that's a beautiful picture of marriage and the gospel. And that's the type of marriage that God intends for us, for us to lay down our life for another person. One thing I loved about Mary is that she was in her 30s also, and uh, she'd never had a serious relationship with a guy, which I thought was crazy, because, and everyone in the church thought it was crazy, because she's such a great woman. It's like, why, is, why are not all the guys pursuing her? Uh, but she spent her 20s being content with Christ. She spent her 20s making disciples. She, she didn't just sit on her couch with her cat, uh, waiting for some you know, guy to ask her out, but she lived her life with purpose for Christ. She spent her vacation time taking uh, kids to Maranatha camp every summer. She invested her life in people. And to me, that was one of the most attractive things about her. So that's what God's done in my life. He's done this remarkable transformation. He showed me that what society says about sexuality and relationships and marriage is not true. That marriage is a picture of the gospel, a picture of Jesus dying for his creation. We're also called to be a picture of that by dying to ourselves to give our lives to our spouse. 
It's not about what they can do for us, about how they can make us feel, but it's about finding our value and our wholeness through Christ so we can love our, our, our spouse unconditionally. So I'm going to end my story with that and try to get on to some questions. So I hope that you guys have texted some questions. It's not too late. There's my number. So uh, please, uh, if you have any questions, uh, please text them in. It looks like we have some. Uh, and so please keep those coming in, and we will um, uh, answer as many as I can. So we already have five or six. Let me kind of screen through these and um, guess some of them are probably the same. So get out of your phones. Feel free to text in any questions and we will try to get to them. We have maybe about 20 minutes left. So we'll see what we can get to in 20 minutes. So there's a couple questions, kind of basic questions on reaching out. How do we reach out to other people who are living different life in the gay community? And so uh, that's a very broad question. Um, it looks like several people are asking similar things. So let me just try to answer that. Uh, um, how do we reach out uh, to someone who's living the, the gay life? Uh, they're, they're living in that lifestyle. They're our coworker, friend, family. What do we do? Well, um, I think that we start with this. It's, we have to figure out, is this person a believer or are they not a believer? Because if they don't know Christ, if they're not a believer in Jesus, then we really can't expect them to live a biblical life. And one, one piece of perspective I try to give people on that is this, is that if this person is not a believer, if they don't know Christ, then they need Jesus for way more than just their sexuality. And so uh, our job isn't to just try to convince them that their lifestyle is a sin. Our job is to lead them towards Jesus, to help them see their need for Jesus in every area of their life. And so, uh, so we have to uh, lead them to Jesus in every area of their life, not just try to win a debate with them, not just try to uh, debate this, this one sin, this one behavior, but we need to focus on their hearts and sometimes uh, figure out what is their heart worshiping? What is the idolatry behind their, their lifestyle, really their lifestyle uh, as a gay or lesbian person is just a symptom of deeper heart level issues. And so maybe they're not even willing to have that conversation with us, and that's okay. We need to build a relationship with them. We need to show them compassion. We need to listen to their struggles. Sometimes Christians are very quick to speak and slow to listen, but the Bible tells us to be uh, quick to listen and slow to speak. Show them compassion for where they've been hurt. Many people in the LGBT community have been very hurt by Christians, just like I was at one time. So listen to them. Ask them questions. Uh, show them compassion for the struggles that they've been through. And I think to sum that up, we don't expect non-believers to live a biblical life. Uh, those of us who are believers, we have a hard enough time living a biblical life. And so we can't expect non-believers to live a biblical life. Our, our job as Christians to make disciples means that we help them see their need for Jesus in every area of their life and not just focus on that one area. Um, so this one's kind of the same. It says, how do you speak truth to a gay person who is proud of being gay? And I'd again just say, 
Don't focus on that one area of their life. Uh, um, get to know them, listen to them, show them that you love them, help them see Jesus at work in your life. Just like uh, my friends, I saw Jesus at work in their life. So then when they loved me so well, I knew that that's not them who loves me. That's the Jesus I see in them who loves me. And so instead of focusing on just the outward act of their pride and their, their lifestyle as being gay, like help them see their need for Jesus in every area of their life. Show them love and compassion and grace. And uh, don't just focus on their outward behavior, but focus on what is going on in their heart. Um, uh, there's a couple of questions asked about my parents. Uh, this one says, did your parents ever know? And uh, another one, when did your parents find out? Was there something they did or didn't do that may or may not have helped you? Uh, and so my, I did a very, very good job of keeping this a secret. I was like desperate to keep this a secret from my parents and my family because I thought just with the way that they uh, talked about this issue, um, it's like they did not talk about the issue of homosexuality in a way that uh, showed grace at all. And Ephesians 4.29 says, Make sure that everything you say, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but make sure everything you say gives grace to those who hear it. And so for one thing, whether it's parents or anyone, we have to talk about these issues in a way that gives grace to those who hear. Uh, I I remember a while back talking to a guy in a church where I spoke, and he had struggled with same-sex attraction his entire life and never told a single person, including his church, including his small group that he was in. And I said, why would you not tell your small group, this, this men's group you're in? He'd been in the same men's group for five years. And he said that the first night they met, five years earlier, one of them made a comment about homosexuality, and another one said, well, it's a good thing none of us struggle with that. And I have no doubt that those guys had no malicious intent, but they had no idea that someone in the room is struggling with that. Uh, and so they didn't talk about it in a way that gave grace to the person who was struggling. Therefore, this guy instantly put up walls and said, all right, I guess uh, I, I, I can't be truthful about this. I guess I can't let anyone um, uh, know that I'm struggling with this because this is not a safe place to struggle. And so I think from the standpoint of parents, um, uh, we, we talk about these issues in ways that give grace. I know with my parents, they didn't know until after I had already come to know Christ. I finally told them, and they had so much regret in the way that they talked about this issue because they started to understand that the way that they talked about it gave me wound after wound and made me just uh, put up this wall where I was desperate to keep it a secret. I was so desperate to keep it a secret. Uh, um, One time I was 16 and I was, you know, hooked on pornography. This is back when we had, like, dial-up internet, where you had to, like, wait for it to connect and listen to this annoying beeping sound. Like, you teenagers will never know the torture of that. Uh, but I came home from school. I looked at pornography uh, uh, on the computer, which was in my room, which was a horrible idea uh, to have the computer in my room, but we did. And then I hurried it because I had to hurry off to work. Well, then, as I was leaving for work, uh, my mom came home, and she, I realized, oh, shoot, I didn't, like, clear the history. My mom's going to see what, what I was looking at. Not only was it pornography, but it was gay pornography. And, like, what if she found that out? So I hurried back home, and I got there. My mom had already gotten there, and I ran downstairs. She was, like, getting on the computer, like, doing the, you know, dialing up the Internet. And I was so desperate for her to not find out. 
I went outside and I cut our phone line. And uh, so I cut our phone line and my, I ran back inside. My mom was like, hey, I can't get the internet to work. And so I was like, oh, I don't know what's wrong. I'll fix it after I get home from work. And I went home, I went to work. I came home that night. I spliced up the phone line outside so it was fixed. And so I was so desperate to keep it a secret. Uh, and part of that was because the way that they talked about it, they didn't talk about it in a way that even took in consideration that someone in the room might be struggling with this. And so we have to talk about these issues in ways that give grace to those who hear. And I think that uh, for parents, um, I think that for parents, this just needs to be a part of everyday discipleship, of talking to your kids about relationships, talking to them about their heart, talking to them about what they're feeling and what desires they're having. These are not just one and done conversations. Oh, let me have this conversation with my child and check it off the list. Like talking about sexuality and relationships should be a part of everyday discipleship that you have with your kids. Um, so there's a couple questions. Thank you, by the way, for all the questions. Uh, there's a couple questions about whether or not people are born gay. And so uh, let me just kind of dive into that. I could spend like an hour talking about that, but I don't think you guys want to listen to it for an hour. So I'll try to get there quickly. Um, so a couple of questions uh, along the lines of, of, of explain how you think people, if people are born that way. One of them just says, do you think that people are born that way? So let me just try to answer all those uh, together. That's a very complicated topic. Um, I always, whenever I answer that, there's, there's a couple of different nuances that we have to treat that question with. And one is this, is that for the person who's struggling, it feels like you're born that way. And I completely understand that because I spent most of my life that way. Like, it feels like this is the way that I was born. And so we have to have compassion that it seems like that's someone's experience. And that when they say that, they're genuinely, they genuinely believe that. They sincerely believe that they're born that way because it just feels like this is the way I am. It feels natural. It feels like this is the way that God created me. And so we have to have compassion and understanding that people sincerely believe that because that's what it feels like they've experienced. But we also know that people are dead to the truth. They're blind to the truth. They're dead in their transgressions. And so we can't expect the non-believing world to, to understand that truth because they're blinded because of their sin. Jeremiah says that our hearts are deceitful. Their hearts have been deceived. And so uh, I 100% do not believe that we are born gay with, or with same-sex attraction. And the uh, biggest reason why I believe that is because I've seen my heart change. I've seen my attractions change. I've walked along beside hundreds of people and seen their attractions change. Now that change might last for a lifetime, might take a lifetime, and might be something people struggle with the rest of their lifetime, but they can slowly but surely through sanctification move away from same-sex attraction and same-sex desires. I've seen that change, and if we're born that way, then, uh, then it could never change, but I see that change in person after person. There's thousands of us, and the world would say that people like me do not exist. They are adamant that we're all frauds, we do not exist, and they feel so threatened by the existence of people like me because we completely derail their narrative of uh, gay people are born that way and there's nothing that they can do about it. We need to, they just need to be accepted and able to live that life because that's the way they were created. 
but people like me prove otherwise. Uh, but I also um, want to be very picky and choosy and sensitive on who I have that conversation with, because for one thing, for a non-believer, I, I understand how they feel like they're just born that way, and that's just the way that they are. And uh, really, when it comes down to it, um, uh, even if they discover that some people were born gay with same-sex attraction, we're all born into sin, and we're all called to deny ourselves. We're all called to deny the things that come natural to us. So in one way, it doesn't matter, because uh, it doesn't matter in the sense that we can live a life that's in accordance to God's word, no matter what feelings, attractions we have, whether they're developmental or we're born with them, because we're all born into sin, but God makes us new, and he can renew our hearts, he can change our hearts. But I think that the conversation about whether we're born that way or not is important, because I want guys to find hope. I want them to find freedom from these desires and attractions. And so uh, there, there's some people in the Christian world who just say, oh, it doesn't matter at all. Like, they can choose to live the life that's honoring to God, but let's not deal with their attractions, desires. That part of it is important. And I feel like it is important because I don't want them to just have to white knuckle their entire life trying to fight off these desires. I want them to be able to deal with these desires and be transformed like God's word promises us to do. It's no different than uh, if I had a guy who um, was, was stealing a lot. He just had this natural desire to steal. He, and, and, you know, maybe he dealt with the consequences of that and he came to know Christ and he quit stealing. I celebrate the fact that he was no longer stealing. That's a great step. That's wonderful that he changed how he was living. But I wouldn't want to end there. I'd also want to deal with his heart on what is causing you to desire to steal. I wouldn't just want him to stop stealing. I'd want him to stop desiring to steal, to stop coveting, to stop uh, uh, trying to acquire things that God hadn't given him. And so I would not only just deal with the behavior, but I'd deal with what's going on in his heart. So I think that that's a great way of dealing with same-sex desires, same-sex attractions, people uh, in the gay community. We don't want to deal with the behavior. We want to deal with their heart. And, and I 100% don't believe that they're born with those desires. Um, but it's usually not until someone comes to know Christ that God illuminates those areas of their heart and they're even, even able to understand that. So that's why I'm not going to, for an openly gay person who doesn't know the Lord, I'm not going to argue with them about that. I want them to love and know Christ. And uh, I'm probably not going to convince them they're not born that way. If they don't, unless they want to have that conversation with me, I'm not going to purse that conversation with them at all. I want them to see their need for Christ in every area of their life. And they're probably not going to see that they're not born that way. Or they're, they're, they're not going to understand some of that until after they know Christ and they have the Holy Spirit uh, um, dwelling inside of them to show them those areas of their heart. Um, here's a good question. Uh, do your Christ, did your Christian brothers do anything practically to help you through sexual temptations? Uh, work, work the best, you think. And so I think that, I mean, this goes for all of us. We all struggle with sexual temptations. Uh, and so I'm very thankful for brothers and sisters who walked alongside me for the last 13 years in this. Um, uh, I think that as I was really struggling 
there's a couple things that uh, were part of overcoming sexual temptation. And this applies to whether it's gay, straight, or what it is. Um, I think that we live in a world where we're all about, within the Christian circles, accountability. Um, uh, we talk about accountability a lot, and that can be a good thing. Uh, uh, there's times when I was still struggling where I'd give up my computer, uh, give up my smartphone. I'd take them to my pastor or a friend and say, I can't have this right now. I need to put some physical barriers between me and temptation. Uh, and so that's a good thing to do. But in the long run, what we need is heart-level change. And so uh, I, I think we need to focus on not just the behavior, but we need to focus on what's going on in my heart. Why am I desiring this? Uh, why am I trying to use this person in this way? Why am I trying to find value uh, through a relationship or through pornography? Uh, why am I using this as a release to comfort myself or to numb myself? And so I think that uh, physical barriers of, of, you know, to put them between yourself and temptation is a good thing in the short run. But in the long run, you need to change your heart. You need to work through what's going on in my heart. What lies have I believed about myself, about God, and about the world that's making me worship these people and leading me to sexual temptation? And so I was really thankful for guys who uh, walked me through that. On uh, They helped put in the physical barriers, whether it's taking my computer away from me, get, you know, taking away the access to pornography, but they also engaged with my heart and helped uh, apply God's truth to the lies that I believe. Um, this question says, do you get treated differently because of your ministry from the LGBTQ community? Uh, no, and um, answer is absolutely yes. Uh, like I said before, just our world is adamant that people like me don't exist. And so sometimes I'm, I, I grew up in this interesting time where uh, when I was growing up, 20, 25 years ago, uh, being someone you know who identifies as gay, I was our society looked down on people like us. Where sometimes the gay community was treated really horribly, uh, and sometimes they still are. But now we live in a culture that's completely opposite, where that sin is celebrated most of the time, and and that community kind of feels very threatened by me because I'm proof that we're not born that way, that we can live a different life, and so. Uh, um, sometimes they're very hostile towards me. Uh, sometimes after doing these talks, I get hate mail, death threats, all kinds of crazy things because they feel threatened uh, by the choice I'm making. Um, but I always like to remind Christians that we can't expect non-believers to behave in a biblical, loving way, but we can choose how we respond. So I try to choose for my response to be with love and grace towards them, to show them the love of Christ even though they might be hostile towards me. Uh, a couple years ago, I had an incident like that. Um, I, I was speaking at a college campus in North Carolina, NC State, which is a big campus, like 30, 35,000 students. And my talk on campus had garnered a lot of negative publicity. It kind of blown up on campus. I was kind of accused of being anti-gay, bigoted, hate speech, because uh, that's where they accuse anyone who has you know, biblical understanding of sexuality of being. And so it, all these people on campus had organized all these protests uh, for the fact that I was coming. And so it was so bad and cra just crazy and blown up that like the student government had a meeting during my talk 
uh, they had a special meeting to condemn me, to pass a resolution condemning me and the ministry that brought me to campus before they even had a chance to hear what I was saying. And so it just uh, blows up sometimes. And so at this particular event, uh, there's hundreds of people protesting. There's signs all over campus. There's protesters outside holding signs. There's the media there. Just It turned into a complete circus. We had to have security there because I got death threats. And, uh, and I, I was just praying that God could get me through this night. And he did by his grace. I talked about God's love and grace. And one of the things that we prayed was that the protesters wouldn't just stand outside and protest, but they'd come in and listen to what I had to say. And God answered that prayer. Hundreds of protesters came in. Most of them stood at the back of the room holding up their signs. And I, I preached about God's love and grace. I shared my story. We did Q&A, which got kind of tense at times, so it stayed under control. And I got through it. It was a difficult evening, uh, but just trusting that God would use it. Well, I got an email about three months later from a student named Levi, who was uh, one of the protesters in the back of the room holding up a sign. And Levi shared his story, blood similar to mine, growing up in a Christian home, struggling with same-sex attraction, trying to keep it a secret. Well, he went to college, and just he came out of the closet and accepted, this is just who I am. And now he's in the sophomore year, and he was an activist with the, some of the LGBT crowds on campus. But he was standing in the back of that room, and he seen holding up his sign, and he, he said that he's seen how uh, his community showed so much hostility towards me. They hated me and the message that I had. But he said he stood there seeing that I was responding to them with love and grace, and I was being kind and compassionate. And he said that as uh, he stood there holding the sign, he realized what was going through his head was he realized, I'm standing on the wrong side of hate. And I thought that was just a, such a powerful statement. And so he actually left that night right after my talk. He didn't go into the, like, the post-talk rallies that they were doing on campus. He left and went back to his dorm room. And he started to think about some of the things that he had heard and how, about how I said that God loved him unconditionally and how God had transform, transformed my life. So that night he got down on his knees and he prayed for God to provide him the forgiveness that he provided me. That night he surrendered his life to Christ. And in the weeks following, he connected with his old youth pastor. He found, he connected with a ministry on campus that had brought me to campus. And uh, he completely walked away from the LGBT community. He walked away from his same-sex relationship and was living a completely different life. Now, I always try to remember that story as an example of, it's God who changes people's hearts. In that moment, in that room, God shined the light of truth in Levi's heart. But he just used the love and grace that I was trying to, to communicate to do it. And so a lot of people that night came hard-hearted and bitter and angry towards Christians like many LGBT people are. Most of them left bitter and angry with a chip on their shoulder. But in Levi's life, God chose to shine the light of truth into his heart. And, uh, and it's just... a humbling to be a part of that and it's through love and grace through our lives that god chooses to shine the light of truth into other people's hearts even when they're hard-hearted and bitter and angry so that's that's a reminder to me to always preach with love and grace and treat people with compassion and god uses that 
for them to see Jesus in us and see how much he loves them. And he uses that to shine the light of truth into their hearts and soften their hearts towards the gospel. I think that's a really good place to end it. So let me just close us in prayer. Um, before I close us, uh, um, if any of you just have questions, especially you youth group kids, like if this is stirring something in your heart, if you can relate if in some way, if you can see how you've twisted sexuality, please just talk to someone. Talk to Josh. Talk to some other leaders. Talk to Pastor Matt. These are guys who will love you through it. Uh, if you're one of the girls, talk to Rachel or any other women leaders, and they'd love to talk to you about this. I don't want this to just be a one-time conversation. This should just be the start of looking at how have I twisted sexuality in relationships because we've all done it in some way. And how can I conform to God's truth? How can I untwist what my heart is twisted? So I, I just pray and encourage you guys to start that process tonight by being real about where you're at, by talking to a leader, by, by praying and just asking God to reveal those areas in your life. Um, for all of you adults in the room, if you have questions for me, you can continue to just text me, let me know. Also, right outside the door is a little table that has some of my brochures, some business cards. There's also a sign-up where you can sign up to be on my mailing list. I send out some emails and some newsletters on how you can pray for my ministry and what's going on. So I'd love to have you guys on the list so you know how to pray for my ministry and just what God's doing. Uh, and then I'll just be around afterwards if anyone wants to connect. All right, let me close this in prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you again for tonight. I thank you for my story and what you've done in my life. I, I pray that uh, this can be a group of kids that are transformed by your word, where they can, they can be real about their sin, they can be real about where their hearts have twisted sexuality and relationships. I, I pray that they can repent of that, that you can just shine the light of truth in their hearts. I pray that they can start down a course of just finding redemption and hope and transformation just like I did. I pray for the leaders here that you would equip them to walk these youth group kids through that process. I pray that this can be a group of kids that shows love and grace in their community, in their schools, on their sports teams. I pray that they can pray for others, that they can have a positive influence, that they can show love and grace and compassion to the people around them. Pray these things in your name. Amen.